Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Forecast Fest. I'm Kate Baldwin, here with my colleagues, John Avalon. Hola. And Harry Anton. Shalomi, my homies. <laughs> I get that laugh. It's going to stop laughing because my laugh is weird. This week, we've got a new poll out of New Hampshire. It's actually the first in a while, which I was very excited about. And Joe Biden's got some explaining to do. We're going to tell you which candidates are fighting it out for the top spot. Then, speaking of Joe Biden... From anemic fundraising to reports that some within the party see him as vulnerable, what is the status of his campaign? We shall discuss. And finally, forget 2020, everybody, even though that's all that we talk about. Tuesday is Election Day, with voters heading to the polls to decide key races in Mississippi, Kentucky, and Virginia. Before we get to any of that, let's get to Harry. The latest forecast. What do you have? (laughs) (laughs) That was not Kate's laugh. That was (laughs) that was just to be clear. (laughs) To be clear. Happy Halloween. That's Harvey Firestein is in the aisles now. (laughs) Exactly. I love Harvey. Matchmaker. (laughs) Who doesn't love Mrs. Doubtfire? This week we have new power rankings. Um, out from Chris Saliza and myself. And let's get right to it. I'll run through it quickly. Better works at 10. He's down a slot. Uh, Tom Steyer is up to nine. He's up one slot. Uh, Andrew Yang comes in at eight. Amy Klobuchar, seven. Cory Booker, six. Kamala Harris, five. Bernie Sanders, four. Down a spot. I wouldn't read too much into that. We'll get into that in a moment. Pete Buttigieg up to number three. He's up one spot. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. is at number two, and Elizabeth Warren, the senior senator from the great state of Massachusetts, retains her top spot in this edition of the power rankings. Why is Sanders down? Okay, so this is I wouldn't say that Sanders is so much down as Buddha Judge seems to be rising a little bit. He seems to be gaining ground in Iowa. Um, he's averaging there in the high teens. You look to New Hampshire, he has the lowest negatives in that particular state. And to me, he is someone who has re-engineered his campaign, whereby it is now very conceivable in my mind, and I believe in Christopher's mind as well, that he can win the first two states. And unlike some other uh, characters in the top five, other um, candidates, uh, I think that there's a real shot that he could get the endorsements, get the party behind him. So you know what I'm going to ask. Is this a sign of Buddha judgmentum? Uh No, I like as many con- like syllables it, as possible. It's much harder as we could make it. Yeah, right? exactly. It's more, just com- for more, fun. more complicated the and, better. And, and, and in a serious way also, I mean, you know, uh, Iowa and New Hampshire are both great states, not particularly diverse. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think that is the real question mark for the Buttigieg campaign. Not only how to pronounce his name, not only how to spell his name, not only how to get his name in with momentum and a thing, but whether or not he can actually expand beyond his white base to reach out to African. Americans who make up a fifth to a quarter of the party. There's a reason why in South Carolina he's going absolutely nowhere. Uh, And, you know, but I kind of look at it this way. You know, I 
when people say, and we'll get to this, you know, is Joe Biden flawed? I say they're all flawed. And that's kind of part of the reason why Biden is still number two in our power rankings. There is no easy path for any of them to win the nomination. You can second guess pretty much anyone that you put in first place, anyone you put in second, anyone you put in third, anyone you put in fourth. And I really do view it as a top tier of Bernie, Buttigieg, Biden and Warren. I don't necessarily see that much distance between one and three or really one and four while there's a major drop off between four and five. I think that is why I feel that when you called them characters rather than candidates a second ago, I think that's exactly what we should call them from now on. They should just be characters in this wild play of 2020. Am I wrong to say that Buddha judge, a judge, a judge is peaking at the right moment? I think they're all peaking at the wrong moment, actually. I mean, the time you really want to— What are you wanna... even saying to me? <laughs> I, I, look, you technically you want to kind of peak in January, right? Remember when Rick Santorum peaked in Iowa? He peaked right at the very end there in the final two weeks. And that was part of the problem I could argue with Warren is that she— may have peaked too early in this campaign. Uh, But of course, just because you peak once doesn't mean you can't peak and peak again. A double peak? A double peak. A double peak. Oh, my God. That's the Newt Gingrich, I believe. I believe actually Newt might have actually peaked three times. So you should really want to follow the Newt Gingrich model to the White House. As we all remember from the Gingrich administration. The Gingrich administration was a quality administration, at least in the minds of Newt Gingrich. Exactly. Read his next book. I'm sure we'll say that as well. Okay. (laughs) So if the power rankings are the more national view, if you will, of where the candidates – characters stand. Let's narrow in on one of the early states, New Hampshire. In the latest CNN poll conducted by the University of New Hampshire, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, they're in a tight race for first place. The big story, it seems, is Joe Biden in third. What is behind Biden's drop here? I, I mean, Pete the, Buttigieg. The I, Buttigieg of Minterbeck. Well, no. Interestingly enough, that Buttigieg is at 10 percent now, just like he was Back in um, the last poll that was taken in July, what I think is really behind this is now you have a series of candidates or characters, as Ms. Beaubon might say. I uh, can't even say my name anymore. Is it's all devolving here. It's all devolving. <laughs> I can't say nothing. Um, you have Gabbard. You have Klobuchar. You have Yang, all at 5% in this poll. This is one of the messiest freak. I mean, it's a mess. I, I live blogged this poll as it was coming out yesterday. I just call this a complete mess. You have a front runner technically in Bernie Sanders in this poll, 21%. I don't want to take anything away right. from Sanders. I mean, he's at 21. He technically has the highest amount of support. Now, that's within the margin of error of Warren being at 18% and then but Biden. But he's got big support in New Hampshire. We've seen got, this in the past. Right. We've seen this in the past. But I went back. I looked at the polls at this point in the cycle. I couldn't find a single instance in which the leading candidate was polling this low. There are seven candidates between five and 21 percent. What the heck is going to happen here? I don't know with still three months to go. And and as unnerving as that obviously is to you, the, <laughs> the I mean, you know, the caucus is even weirder because of the way it's done. Here's the yeah. thing about New Hampshire, right? First of all, let, let, let's agree that one of the things this shows, and the reason it's, it's sort of uh, apparently unnerving you, is that this is a broad but not very good field. This is not a there, – there are not a lot of incredibly strong people. It's a very fractured field and, and that's just, it's something that Democrats can have to deal with. Second of all, New Hampshire is really weird because of the outsized influence of neighboring state candidates. Mm-hmm. Go back historically. And in this case, you've got two of them. Yeah. You got Bernie Sanders from Vermont sharing a border and you got Elizabeth Warren sharing a major media market and, and a border. 
Yeah, and and that is a major factor for, for both of them. What I think is odd about this is that Bernie, of course, won New Hampshire last time around. Typically, New Hampshire has been a moderating force uh, in the presidential. Fairly conservative state. Union leader endorsement used to matter a lot. Democrats, obviously, that doesn't apply. But it was a state with a plurality of independent voters wouldn't typically go far left. But you see these two neighboring state senators both represent the far left. Right. And they're doing incredibly well. So it's just an example of how just bizarro this particular cycle is. So then that leads to the question of is there a possibility, is it conceivable that Joe Biden, the one of the apparent front runners, loses Iowa, loses New Hampshire and can still go on to survive and win the nomination? That was basically what he was asked when he called into Andrea Mitchell's show on MSNBC. Let us play his response. Hmm. I feel good about Iowa. I feel good about what's going on. I think we have all we need to be able to conduct a really successful campaign in in all four early states. And so I'm feeling good about it. Can he lose Iowa, lose New Hampshire, and then make South Carolina make it all okay, John Avalon? Gather around, everyone. (laughs) Let me tell you a little story about something called the Florida Firewall. (gasps) Uh, it was the heady days in the 2008 campaign on the Republican side where one former New York City mayor, Rudy Giuliani, had been leading in the polls. I was familiar with his work. I worked with him as mayor, uh, ran policy and speech writing on the campaign. And gosh, you know, it was a compressed schedule that year and Rudy Giuliani had to lead in uh, Florida. New Hampshire was complicated. Iowa wasn't a good fit for him. You had Mitt Romney, neighboring state, plus John McCain in New Hampshire. Didn't look like there was a lot of room for him in a state he'd typically do well in. But no, we were told. Florida firewall. 35 points. So many New Yorkers. The double F. Gonna happen. That didn't happen. (laughs) That didn't happen even a little bit. And the reason is that momentum matters. In the primaries, momentum matters. And while Joe Biden may be the only guy who can unite a party that is currently not reflecting the fact that it is weighted towards moderates uh, compared to liberals, basically even, but the very left is a very small part of this party, um, he's going to need to at least be in the top three in, in the first two. Then you got Nevada. Nevada. Oh, my gosh, John. I know. Everyone's going to hit me on this. Crucial Wachoshka County. And um, uh, and, and then and then so, no, he should not put too much emphasis on South Carolina. Yeah. Maybe able to pull it out because you could also see Cory Booker or Kamala Harris drop out by then. Maybe mm-hmm. um, Biden's going to stay through Super Tuesday. He should. But it is a really dumb, risky strategy to say you're going to win four states out. Yeah. Yes. And yes. I think maybe the most important. Did you like that little fireside chat? I, just I was so in. I was like had my hot cocoa. <laughs> I was just I was in. I was so in. In this uh, poll, only 23 percent of likely voters say they have definitely decided whom to support. On the flip side, more than six in 10 of the likely Republican primary voters in New Hampshire say that they definitely have made up their minds. So just showing what you said, like yeah. the the big but messy. This is why you hate this poll. And this is why. This cast of characters is where they are. Nobody can decide yet. No. Can I ask a Harry question? Yes. Harry, so here's the deal. This poll, this is driving me bonkers because they have a breakdown of ideology. I like that kind of nerdy cross-tab stuff. That's why we're all here. Conservatives and moderates in the Democratic Party. It really should be moderates and conservatives because there are very few conservatives in the party anymore. 20 percent for Biden in New Hampshire, 17 for Sanders. What? 17 yeah, right? percent for Sanders among moderates? This guy is 
a the most far left candidate, the anti moderate. He is an explicitly ideological socialist from a neighboring state. So it's not even like oh, you know. How can you explain, or is it just that people don't actually know what these words mean, or they don't paying attention? <laughs> and because I don't understand how he's three points behind Biden in New Hampshire among self-described moderates and conservative Democrats. Sometimes okay, ideology isn't what people vote on, and that's essentially the story there. Uh, look, there are there, there are. <laughs> that's it. Uncle Neil Sadaka would be very proud of you. That's just it. We can just move on. (laughs) Look, there are margins of error with this stuff, but I think that this is something I have sort of pushed on all along. Education matters. Ideology matters. Age matters. Race, less of a player in obviously New Hampshire. But voters are not just voting along ideological lines, and that's what makes this so fun to watch. Okay. All right. Enough of so our crooning. Fun. Enough about enough of your crooning, but more about Joe Biden, possibly related. Nationally, Joe Biden continues to hold steady in the polls, but there's a narrative that's been gaining traction lately that his campaign might be in trouble, even sparking a profile by New York Magazine titled The Zombie Campaign. Joe Biden is the least formidable front runner ever. Will it matter? Do you agree with that assessment? First of all, I got to say, this is a great article by Olivia Nucci. It's great. Look, it's really one of the must-reads to date because there is this peculiarity of Joe Biden as front-runner status in the context of this entire campaign. He's 77. He's third or fourth in money. He's not leading in the early states. And yet, to a certain sector of folks, he simultaneously feels inevitable because they see that he's the only one who consistently beats Donald Trump and incredibly vulnerable. How dare you? Joe Biden doesn't turn 77 until November 20th, I believe. So you've aged him 20 days. I'm very disappointed in you. I'm disappointed in myself. Um, Look, I I, I think that there are a lot of reasons, you know, why. First off, it is a great piece. Is he the weakest front runner ever? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I I could make the argument that though that Rudy Giuliani was the weakest front runner ever. You know, look, I think it is a matter of what you see. Here's what we know about Joe Biden at this point. He's holding a national lead. I don't think there's really much of a doubt about that. The polls that had Elizabeth Warren up with the exception of one have now slid back. National polls mean bunk. You should see Kate's face when she says except the power ranking still has Warren in one. I'll Um, just note. That is true. But in Iowa, in New Hampshire, he's struggling. Um, In the endorsement race, he still leads, uh, but not by that much. He doesn't have that many endorsements. They've very much slowed down as of recently. Like Elizabeth Warren just got her first endorsement for a member of Congress. Endorsements But she didn't get her first, but she— I refer you back to my previous bunk statement. (laughs) Joe Biden has a lot more. Um, endorsements from members yep. of Congress. He has the most by far. Um, and so there's that. But obviously, when you look at Biden and you look at where he is in Iowa and New Hampshire, keep in mind that the only two candidates, I believe, in the modern era to win a party's nomination without winning either Iowa or New Hampshire were George McGovern in 1972 and William Clinton in 1992. Can I just make a, a little nerdish point about William Jefferson Clinton? So he didn't win New Hampshire, it's true, but he came out looking like winner because he was the comeback kid. Came in second to Paul Songus. And that's sort of part of the point about neighboring states. A neighboring state senators win, but it also means that that win means less. And didn't he he lost Iowa, but didn't everybody lose Iowa because, because wasn't of that Tom Harkin? Harkin. Yeah. And he yes. didn't really compete. So yeah. it's no not really did. fair to say yes. because Harkin had locked it up. Right. So oh, uh, Tom Harkin. Tom Harkin. Uh, so that I think gets Harkin the point him. though that 
Nope. If you don't win <laughs> Iowa or New Hampshire, your campaign could be in a lot of trouble. But here's the other thing I'll point out. Within Iowa and New Hampshire, Biden is fairly close. There's still three months to go. We The polls have yep. kind of been bouncing. So, I look, I— if you're certainly putting Don't count a, out the zombie campaign is what you're saying. Zombies tend to come back to life. No. Oh. No. Mm-hmm. Actually, no. Mm-hmm. I thought they come out of the grave and then they eat you. They well, do, but they're still dead. They're still Aren't dead. They? they just... Yeah. Yeah, that's they're the still point. dead. I thought they were just in a different form of they're life. They're the undead. No, they're dead. But... The undead campaign. One thing that we've noticed since the Times started writing the pieces about how... Big name Democrats are nervous mm. and looking elsewhere. And yes, there's a historical perspective of they said very similar things about William Jefferson Clinton around these Which times. Is crazy, right? right? It's funny to see. But you then you have this kind of zombie campaign narrative written, um, and you also it is. I don't know if I, we can go as far as to say it's in response or a reaction, but you see changes within the campaign. In Joe Biden's campaign, which is he's now done an interview with 60 Minutes. He called into Andrea Mitchell's show. He's being more blunt in his language. The Well, let's play the 60 Minutes bit. Let's play the 60 Minutes bit with him with Nora O'Donnell. President Trump says Russian interference is a hoax. <laughs> he's an idiot on terms of saying that. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows it. Nobody doubts it. That shows that they're trying to make a change because he's now speaking Donald Trump language, kind of like soft Donald Trump language, but a little bit Donald Trump language there. That's what I see. I see they're making changes because they're nervous. I look if something if if it ain't working, you better fix it. And obviously he was taking lines from my mother of how she has spoken to me, given some of my actions in my life. But um, I, sorry, I, I'm so reluctant. to Here's ask, the line. Harry's a hoax. And his mom. I'm just kidding. It's, it's an idiot. <laughs> it's an idiot. Ah. Uh, but I, I look, there's clearly something going on with donors, clearly something going on with those within the party who are not comfortable with Warren or Sanders. And he wants to try and assure them that he has the energy to fight back. Yeah. And so you do change tracks. And, you know, the truth is if you're going to win, you can't, in the words, I believe, of David Axelrod, run, you know, a campaign with the candidates and witness protection program. Yeah, and- this is such a no brainer. Rose Garden strategy doesn't really work. And candidates who put themselves in front of the media, as Donald Trump did, did do well. Pete Buttigieg came out of nowhere because they embraced the exact opposite strategy. Mm-hmm. And Biden, what he does well at actually is the one-on-one sit-down. Uh, Chris Cuomo looked a lot like the Nora O'Donnell. And he does very well in those formats. Mm-hmm. Exactly. OK. So play offense. Get so out there, that. Joe. Get out there, Joe Bo. Nope. That Joe didn't Bo? Work. I don't know. I felt Joe it first. Better Joe, Joe Bo than Joe yeah. Schmo. No, Joe Schmo's good. Joe Schmo's a regular guy. Just like Joe Bo. That's Joe Sixpack. Yeah, that's Joe Sixpack. I like him more. Yeah. OK, just check. OK. I like We're a Sixpack. <laughs> no, you don't. You, there's no way that you drink. And of that is— cream uh, soda. Yeah. Mm. Six-pack, oh, yeah. Of, oh, yeah, wait, wait. in those creams. Of Dr. Ugh, Brown's God, dark so cherry or Black something. cherry. Black diet. Sorry. Diet Ooh, black the diet cherry. version is truly a crime Cell against Ray. humanity. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Election Day is not one year out. It's not even 100 days out to first votes. Election Day is next week for some. Zooming in on a few state races that could tell a big story. That's up next. We're back. 
And we're going to take a break from 2020. We've got elections actually happening next week, including a couple of governor's races in the South that have a lot of people talking. On Tuesday, voters in Kentucky are heading to the polls to choose between the incumbent Republican, Matt Bevin, and the Democrat and current state attorney, Andy Beshear. State Attorney General, rather, Andy Bashir. And in Mississippi, the governor's race there is seen as surprisingly competitive for the Democrat, considering a Democrat hasn't won the governor's seat there since something like, I don't know, like 1999. What is the state of affairs in Kentucky? Look, how unpopular is Matt Bevin heading into Election Day? But then Trump's approval rating is in the mid to high 50s. Here's the question, though, that I have, which is essentially if you look at some of the polling there, you do see Bevin's approval rating perhaps recovering somewhat as we head into Election Day, as he tries to nationalize this campaign with Donald Trump, aligning himself with Donald Trump. If this if this election were held 12 years ago, say in the end of the Bush administration, I have very little doubt that Bashir would be the next governor of the great state of Kentucky or the Commonwealth of Kentucky, excuse me. But the fact is that polarization is at an all-time high. We already saw uh, just a few weeks ago, John Bell Edwards struggling, not reaching 50 percent in Louisiana, right. despite being a very popular governor there. I just think it is an uphill battle. And the latest polling that I have seen from Kentucky suggests that both Bevin and Bashir are tied, which is not a place you want to be as a Democrat heading into Election Day. I want to make sure people understand this. So the state of the play in Kentucky is the Republican <clears throat> here is trying to nationalize this race, talking impeachment, the whole bit. Trump's going down. But the Democrat wants to— has been trying, more generally speaking, to keep it more on local issues like health care. And right. this is then which a is fascinating – which is what what? Democrats do in, in the South and red states. Yeah. They try to focus on the real issues and away from national politics. So this could be a fascinating test to see if an incumbent Trump can use impeachment successfully or not to stir his base to the polls when it comes to – because that's what, that's what Bevin wants to do is he's talking impeachment the whole bit. I think that – is that going to be the biggest takeaway? I, I, I'll say this much. If Matt Bevin wins, it will be – the takeaway will be that if you're a Republican in a red state, you tie yourself to Donald Trump. And not surprisingly, the polling out of Kentucky suggests that impeaching and removing Donald Trump. Not very popular. I know it was a huge shock. Um, to me when I read those numbers. But yeah, I think it's an increasingly polarized time. Uh, And even in the governor's races, which have held out from being polarized longer than stay pretty much any other sort of race, at least major race, um, even they are becoming more polarized. So let's talk about Mississippi then. This fight is between two electeds, the current Republican lieutenant governor, Tate Reeves, and the current Democratic attorney general, Jim Hood. Is this going to be one of those cases where the Republicans going to win. The Democrat is going to and Democrats are going to say this is actually a win just because we got close because I never <laughs> You've thought seen that movie. I've before. always my mantra that I was taught as a child is second place is first loser. So <laughs> that's how it should likely. Apply. I'd always that much rather win the bronze true. than the silver myself. <clears throat> just, just looks me. better with your skin tone. Is that I where you're getting so? At? I mean, who wants if you bronze, you just win a medal. If you get silver, you just lost out on the gold. I. I This is a tough race. No Democrat has been elected governor of Mississippi since the late 90s. You said 1999, Ronnie Musgrove. Um, If you look more so, he, I believe, is the only statewide Democrat still serving. At least that's elected statewide. Uh, And here's the other big thing about Mississippi. Not only do you, you need to win a majority of the vote statewide to get elected 
governor of Mississippi, but you also need to win a majority of the state house districts. That's so This weird. is very, very difficult if you know how those state house districts are drawn, even if Hood somehow wins a majority of the vote, which he's done, obviously, a number of times when he's been the attorney general run for reelection. I just think it's a very tough road to hoe to be able to win a majority of the state house districts. Yeah, that is a super weird rule, and it's a peculiarity that I'm guessing has its roots in Reconstruction. <laughs> um, but, you know, the one thing I'll say is that state attorney generals tend to make more competitive gubernatorial candidates in open elections than people give credit for. Tough road to hoe in, in Mississippi, majorly uh, up, uphill. I think if we were talking a couple months ago, we'd say Bashir uh, has a much better chance of winning in Kentucky uh, than uh, Hood in Mississippi. But again, you've got two competitive races in deep, deep red states. That's a good thing for the country. It's a good thing just because competitive general elections mean that turnout's up. And um, and there are a lot of real real stakes at issue. So it's good to see competitive races in states that people consider foregone conclusions. So stand by to stand by on those, and we will bring you stand those updates. By. But forget the governor's races now. Let's what? talk about Virginia, where Democrats are hoping for something of a trifecta. Currently, Republicans hold a slim majority, 51-48, in Virginia's state house. And Republicans also have a slim majority 2019 in the state senate there. It's like determined by like a coin flip. I mean, it's a crazy. Yes, no, that's, that remember, that's how the, yes. the, that was literally, state, he's not kidding. No. Yeah, the state house. He's yes. legit actually not making something up for once. But <laughs> <laughs> with all 130 seats in both chambers up for reelection, control of the state legislature is obviously up for grabs and could possibly then turn that state blue because Democrats are hoping they can win both House and Senate, and then they also, of course, still have the governor's mansion um, already. Why do they think they can do that? Is it just because it's so slim, or is it we're finally going to just declare Virginia's blue once and for all? Uh, Here's the deal. In the state uh, House delegates' elections back in 2017, Democrats won by nearly 10 points. Um, If you look at the generic Congress, uh, the generic House ballot, generic state legislative ballot in Virginia. Democrats do seem to be ahead there. Uh, and it's a state that has been moving to the left, uh, e- even going back to 2013 when uh, Terry McAuliffe won the governorship in a year in which there was a Democratic president, which if you know Virginia, usually they vote for the governor of the opposite party 2013, in part because Ken Cuccinelli was the candidate that he is. Really right wing. Uh, that Democrats are able to hold on. But I think this is a state that's moving left. And they really want to take it. And one thing in terms of national implications, if you look at how much Democrats overperformed in the state delegate races, House of Delegate races in 2017, it was actually more predictive of their overperformance compared to the national baseline um, heading into 2018 than even those uh, special federal elections. So it's one reason to keep an eye out on this stuff. What happens – is this a situation where you're, the thinking is what happens in Virginia right you know, here foreshadows if Virginia is going to go red or blue in 2020? Like is this one of those I, – I, I think it's very if, – if Democrats win the, win the state ledge, I, I, I just have a very difficult time imagining that that state is going to possibly go into the red column, especially knowing Donald Trump's approval in that state has generally run behind his approval nationally. With that, that's it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a rating or a comment. And you can always find us on Twitter, whether we like it or not. I'm Kate. I'm at Kate Baldwin. I'm at John Avalon. Don't make me ask you. 
You didn't ask me. I was going to say, but now you sort of did ask me. No, it was Benjamin that. Button there was no question mark on the end of what I said. <laughs> I'm almost afraid to look at Kate right now. You are. You're uh, closing your eyes. At, at Forecaster Enten. E N T E. I mean. Special thanks to the team <laughs> behind the scenes Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, Raj Makija, and David Toledo. We'll see you right back here next time on the Forecast Fest.